0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we're very fortunate to welcome psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson to the show. Dr. Bryson is the best-selling author of The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and The Yes Brain. She's also the co-author of a new book, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become, and How Their Brains Get Wired with Dr. Daniel Siegel. She's also the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection and of the play Strong Institute, a center devoted to the study, research, and practice of play therapy through a neurodevelopmental lens. She's made regular appearances in Time, the New York Times, and the Huffington Post, as well as on shows like Good Morning America. Before we get started today, I would like to take a moment to let you know about Rick's Foundations of Wellbeing online program. The Foundation's program is a year-long program aimed at developing 12 key inner resources that help us through the long road of life. It is an absolutely fantastic, deep offering that has helped thousands of people change their lives for the better. It's Rick's flagship offering. It's his deepest program. If you're interested in his work, that's absolutely the one to go to. And if you're interested in learning more about it, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. We also have a special offer for podcast listeners. If you enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout, you'll receive 10% off the purchase price of the program. So that said, on to the meat of our episode. Tina, thanks for taking the time to be here today. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, and I'm so honored to get to visit with you all about this really important topic. And I've been a fan of Rick's for a long time. So I'm really excited to get to wrestle with these ideas and talk about how relevant they are to our our lives today.
0: That's awesome.
2: That's great. I want to pick up on that relevance theme so we will be talking a lot about how to parent and there're essentially three ways I think people can listen to this material. First, if they are active parents themselves, there's going to be a tremendous amount of relevant information from truly a world-class expert, oh, you, thank Tina. You. Also, people can listen to these topics even if they're not actively parenting today in terms of how life landed on them when they were young with their own parents, with the residues still active in their minds these days. So that's another way to listen to this material with a lot of value. And the third way to listen to it as well is again, even if it's not immediately relevant to you as a parent, or even if it is, in addition to that, we're going to be talking about what we all needed when we were young, which we still need as grown-ups today. The need when we are young is really acute and we're more dependent upon those needs being met by others. But we, as we'll see, we still need those things today. And people can listen today in terms of how life's going for them in the meeting of these deep needs and even in their adult relationships, how they might be able to show up for other people to help them meet these needs as well. So in that context then, to kind of launch, you, as Forrest said, have already written three phenomenal books. And periodically, I go take a look at how uh, your books are doing on Amazon, and they remain perennial favorites for really, really good reasons. You've written essentially a fourth book. Why this particular topic, What's the evolution that yeah. brought you to showing up? Maybe you could explain what you mean by that. How to? Why? What is showing up? Why is it important? And how does it relate to the major topics of your previous books?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's such a nice little welcome into this topic. I think, let's start with the punchline. And the punchline is that decades and decades of research across many cultures have really found that one of the best ways we can predict and understand how we turn out among many different variables you know like how how strong our relationships are our mental health our sense of self our capacity for empathy and on and on and on that there's really one thing that is the best predictor of that and that is whether or not or to what degree we had secure attachment with at least one person and attachment is a mammal inborn instinct that organizes our behavior and the purpose of it at its fundamental level, is to get close to an attachment figure who will help you survive. So, if you're a little, you know, lion cub, and you know a hyena comes towards you, you have a biological drive to go find an attachment figure that will help you survive, to help you feel protected and connected. And so, regardless of, I, I love that you sort of talked about how this uh, uh, is for many, many listeners because if you're a mammal, this content is relevant to you.
2: That's right. <laughs> even if you're 99 years <laughs> exactly,
1: old. <laughs> exactly. Because it's really how our brains are wired throughout the lifespan. And so one of the things that really drove... And I'm so honored to get to write these books with Dan. We're such a fun team. He's a genius. And I do a lot of like in-the-trenches wrestling with kids in schools and in my office. And I'm a mom to three boys. And so we're we're a fun pair. We really enjoy wrestling with these ideas. What's important right now is that when we look at if if one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out is that they've had secure attachment with at least one person, what that really means in terms of secure attachment, what what that looks like is Dan and I call it the four S's, helping kids feel safe, seen, soothed. And then over time, having those repeated experiences lead to what's the fourth S, which is secure. And that's not like I feel secure about myself as much as it is rather my brain has had enough predictable experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed that my brain is now wired to expect that if I have a need, someone's going to show up for me. Mm. And given what's happening in our culture now, you know, Dan had a beautiful way to talk about this recently. We were talking about how in the you know the, the despair of sort of the state of our planet and our politics and the destruction of school violence and other violence in the world, and the disconnection of not feeling like we belong to people. and he had a fourth D that was kind of the antithesis of the four Ss. The fourth one was the distraction of our overscheduled lives and our devices, that what's happening is it's really hard to do the thing that's most required when we provide secure attachment, and that is presence. And so now more than any time in our history, I think this book is important because we have so many things that keep us from being really present in moments in our relationships. And I'll say this little fun anecdote too. Dan and I, from the ver- this book had to be written and he and I had to write it together from the very beginning and The Whole Brain Child, which is the book we're most known for. We wrote this you know book that we just really loved and, and we felt like it was really helpful. And at the end of the book, we had this huge long section about really the most important thing is that you show up, that you're present, that you provide these four S's. And our editor said, you know, actually, that is so rich and so good and it's distracting from everything else. So you got to pull it out. And so it's sort of like a book that's just been waiting all this time to kind of be born into the world.
0: Ah, uh, That's really great. Yeah, that's fantastic. And talking about a lot of the themes you're speaking to about presencing, being alive in a relationship, for lack of a better way of putting it, one of the things that really jumped out to me from the early pages of the book, but it's really a theme throughout, and I suppose a theme in developmental psychology as a whole is the value of being a quote unquote predictable caregiver for a child. Or, you know, as Rick was saying earlier, to extrapolate this out in all of our relationships in general, I think that predictability is probably a value in many ways. So, for people who are a bit less familiar with this territory, what does that mean in this context? And why is it so important to be quote unquote predictable?
1: The brain is an association machine. And so it gives a lot of energy to really the main thing the brain gives energy to is safety. So that's the number one thing the brain cares about more than anything. And so if you're in an unpredictable environment and you don't have, the brain has not had enough repetition to know what to expect, what associations are made. So let's say, let's get really specific. Let's say your parent walks in the door, they come home from work and you're sitting there doing your homework and your parent typically comes in and says, oh, hi, it's so great to see you. How was your day? or just comes and gives you a hug or something like that. And that's what they do most days. Then the brain associates that parent coming in as a safe, warm, connected, feel good kind of moment. Now, one day your parent might come in and they've had a long day or whatever, or the, they walk in the door and the dog jumps on them with muddy paws. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I thought you guys were going to keep, the, you know, put the dog out and it's raining. You didn't wipe her feet off. And you respond like that. It's really not that big of a deal when you respond like that in a moment when most of the other times you respond like that. Now, in contrast, let's say you have a parent who maybe has some stuff from their own childhood that they haven't worked through, or maybe there's some substance use, or maybe they just are really overwhelmed and have a difficulty regulating their own states or whatever is going on. And you never quite know what's going to happen when your parent walks in the door. They might ask you how your day was, or they might come in mad about something, or they might come in and ignore you or whatever that is. And the parent is unpredictable. Then the brain has to spend a lot of attentional resources trying to kind of be hyper vigilant, to constantly be like, ask the questions it cares about. Am I safe? Is this something I need to get out of? What can I do to, to mediate this situation so I can be safe? So the brain has to then spend a lot of energy doing that as opposed to spending its energy being explorative or thinking about gratitude or learning something so you know predictability and is really at its baseline about safety and if we don't feel safe then we can't relax into life we can't be present we can't learn very well and so that's really important and the other piece that's really important to say is that as parents, we tend to be really hard on ourselves when we don't handle things in the right way. And that's really not quite what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is what happens most of the time. What does the child expect based on previous experiences? This research is so hopeful. There's lots of paths of hope that this research leads us to. And one of them is that we can mess up all the time in our relationships, particularly if we have enough sort of good predictability, you know, typically, but we can mess up all the time as long as we repair. And then that even becomes predictable. Mm -hmm, So -hmm. to say there's conflict in relationship. We fight. We, you know, sometimes, sometimes mom's like kind of crazy. You know, she gets she yells about stuff that I don't even understand why (laughs) she cares, you know, if things are if mud gets on the floor or whatever it is. And I also know that after conflict in relationship or after a breach, things are going to be made right again. There's going to be repair. And that's the key when we mess up is repair, repair, repair.
2: I really want to underline what you just said there, the reliability of repair. In other words, misattunements, misunderstandings, gears grinding, lack of rapport, that's just going to happen. It's part of life. I think about the Alan Watts line, life is wiggly. (laughs) We could say life is wobbly, right? It's like a bicycle. You're always leaning from one side to the other. But the question then becomes, will you repair? And I'll make a comment sometimes to people who are thinking about a relationship, about whether to invest in it at another level. Uh, Let's say they're starting to date someone. Uh, And key question for me is, is there repair in the relationship? And is the other person willing to repair? And if there are are issues with the lack of repair, is the person willing to repair the lack of repair?
1: Right, right.
2: On the other hand, if the other person is unwilling to repair and in fact punishes you, Mm. For attempts at repair, that's a flashing red light, that's a felony offense in relationships, and it really is an indicator of no, this is not someone to really invest in or become vulnerable to. So in terms of um, the mind of a child or in the mind of an adult, when another person really shows up for them, you have a lovely way of kind of organizing the benefits inside the being of the child, when I say mind, I mean much more than intellect, the whole stream of consciousness. And you talk about the four S's that uh, as we show up for others, including showing up for our children, we help them experience in really important ways, these four things that coincidentally all begin with the letter S. So I wondered if you could talk us through the four of them kind of succinctly, maybe starting with the first one, safe.
1: Yes. So sometimes people think, well, of course I keep my kids safe. Like I'm you know, I protect them from running out in the street, and I put them in a car seat, and I make sure they see the doctor when they're sick or whatever. But what we're talking about is really, again, this mammal drive to go to and seek proximity being protected when we're in states of distress. And so one of the things that's really important to talk about is kind of the extreme of a breach of safety is that if that biological instinct says go to your caregiver when you're in danger or when you feel terror or you're in distress, and the caregiver is the source of your terror and the source of your fear and the source of your distress, it actually creates disorganization in how the brain processes information because you have one circuit that says go to your caregiver to be protected and another circuit that says get the hell away from danger. And so it actually creates this disorganization. And so Obviously, that happens in cases of abuse and all of that. But what we talk about in this, and, and for, for families that might identify that way and say, yeah, maybe I do terrify my kids when, you know, whenever something goes wrong or I'm, you know, whatever is happening in the family. And in that case, you know, the research is also really hopeful that you should absolutely seek some support and help. And your kids are waiting for you to start bringing more of that safety and predictability. But then there are other things that happen in terms of violations of safety. You know, one might be when kids' parents, whether they're married or not, fight in pretty explosive ways, and they do that in front of kids. Or, you know, there's even research that shows even if an infant is sleeping and their parents are fighting, where the child can hear that, even if they're unconsciously sleeping, that their cortisol levels go up. So we, we take in auditory and visual information and we're constantly processing it. And so when parents are fighting a lot, or there might be times when a parent just screams and, and yells in a really dysregulated way, in an unpredictable way. And all of these things are violations of safety. And, and really the parent instead, ideally, Becomes more like a safe haven, a place to retreat to, and not the source of that. So, you know, the practical strategy from that section is to first do no harm, and the second is to repair, right? And then that leads us to the idea of seen. And I love talking about this one. And I think this is the one that most people don't think about, actually. I think most people think about safety, but they may not think about the idea of seen. The idea of seen is that I feel known and understood. And Dan has a beautiful phrase called feeling felt. And it's a really lovely way to say it. Really the idea behind scene is that my internal experience and how the other person responds to me are a match. So let me give an example. So if my son says, you know, I think there's a, there's a spider in my room and I can't sleep. It's kind of freaking me out. If I were to say, you know, spiders are everywhere. It's not that big of a deal. You just need to toughen up. So a couple things happen. His internal experience of feeling fear is dismissed, distracted from. I've even kind of belittled him a little bit for feeling it and expressing it to me. And his internal experience and my response don't match and don't help him move into that place where he's going to feel soothed because he's not only said, well, she she didn't really respond well to that, but also I'm on my own with my fear. She's not going to help me whereas if instead i say oh i wouldn't like it if there was a spider in my room either is that it, you're you're kind of scared to sleep in there is that right and i i respond in a way that matches or like someone gave me an example earlier where she said my teenager sleeps he won't get up in the morning and i yell like you know why don't you get up you get up when it's something you want to get up for but now i'm asking you to get up to help me and you won't get up instead you know a response for that would be more like a scene response is to say it sucks to have to get up when you're tired. I hate getting up early too. How can I help you make the transition up because I really need you up? So it's not permissive, but it's about the, the other person feeling like you get them and you connect with their internal state. Does that make sense?
0: Totally. And one of the things just to kind of summarize that territory to put it in a nice little phrase that um, I think I first heard this from you, Rick, but I'm not sure if you stole it from somebody else or <laughs> what the, uh, the chain of lineage on this phrase was. But just the phrase start by joining yeah. seems to be a really kind of simple encapsulation of scene. that idea that we want to begin that interaction with somebody else by trying to merge with their perspective in some way or sort of understand what the world's like from them. In the book, you have a lot of little cartoons and kind of play actings of these different common circumstances that people find themselves in. And one of the themes is this movement from essentially telling a child on one level, you're bad, to telling them, okay, I see where you're coming from. And here are some reasons maybe that we have to make some kind of change, which is just a much healthier way to approach the whole territory.
1: Right. Like I I often tell a story about a time when my five-year-old didn't want to get in the bath. And then once he was in, he didn't want to get out. And, uh, you know, and and he he was already really clever by five, you know, I was like, it's time to get out of the tub. And he was like, well, this isn't even a bathtub and I'm not even taking a bath so you can't make me get out. You know, like I didn't even know how to respond to that, (laughs) you know, wiggly logic, right? So here's an example of how we, having boundaries and setting limits with empathy helps kids feel safe. So this is not Mm -hmm. about permissiveness. So he's having this total meltdown. He doesn't want to get out of the tub. He's upset about some little Lego figure guy. You know, it's a long story if I went into all the details. But the main point is that I said, it's time to get out and you can either get out or I will help you get out. Okay, so Mm -hmm. I'm holding the limit. And as I'm pulling him out, he's screaming and yelling and flailing. And what I'm saying to him, first of all, I have to stay regulated. I have to stay calm, which is really hard to do sometimes because those dysregulated or what I call red zone states where the nervous system is in aroused states, are super contagious. So I have to stay regulated. And then as I'm pulling him out and he's crying, I'm saying, I know you're so disappointed you have to get out. You didn't want to get out and you're so mad about that. So his internal experience and my response are are connected. You know, I'm joining with him. It's shared attention around his internal experience. And as I'm pulling him out, I say, it's, you know, if you need to cry and yell Because you're so upset, that's okay. You go ahead and do that. I'm right here with you. So he's got this experience, and I'm not telling him, stop crying. I already told you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Honestly, like I do that stuff like other parents do, but it's not effective. It doesn't even work and it doesn't feel good. And what it implicitly communicates is, don't share your distress with me. I'm not interested or I can't tolerate it. And I'm going to punish you or you're going to have negative. You know, feedback from me if you do. And that comes back to bite us when our kids become adolescents if we keep giving that message.
0: In all of this, Tina, what I'm not a parent, obviously, full disclosure, but for people who are parents and who are maybe looking back on either their current child rearing career or one that existed a bit more in the past, I'm thinking about. With me. I'm 32. I'm pretty thoroughly parented at this point. But for somebody who has a kid who's maybe more like eight, 12 years old, something like that. And you're painting all of these circumstances that I can certainly imagine myself having an incident with a kid in a bathtub at some point in the future where I, oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) where, Where I kind of freak out at them and I go, stop crying, you know, whatever it is. Or I think that sometimes we paint scenarios that are around a parent who is incredibly well-meaning and is maybe a little dysregulated internally so they have a sadness response or something like that. But I'm really thinking here of parents who are looking back over that history and going, wow, I really made some mistakes. Yeah. Or even in circumstances where there was anger involved and anger is a really corrosive emotion and it's one that's really challenging to come to terms with. And even if somebody's really receptive hearing this material, I can imagine there being like some kind of shame response associated with it. Wow, you know, I really messed up. And I'm just wondering how you work with people to kind of come to terms with that. Because I think that getting through that shame response can really make it tough to make a, a meaningful change.
1: Uh, I totally agree with you. And I'm so glad you brought that up. I think it's such an important point. You know, one thing that's hard about writing books, and Rick, you'll, you'll know this too, is that, you know, once it's written, it's you know ideas are living moving targets right and once you put it down in a book it's there's no more changing it right and so you just have to write more books if you're going to you know change your ideas <laughs> but you know i remember feeling some a little bit of anxiety walking into the audio recording booth dan and i always record our own audio version so i was going in to read half of the book and this is really tough stuff i mean what we're asking for parents to do and we should talk a little bit more about this is to reflect on their own relational experiences and how their brains have been wired that impact how they show up or don't show up or in what ways they show up or don't show up. So we're asking them to reflect on this, but we're also asking, we're also saying, you know, we're saying to you, parents who are hyper-parenting and think you have to do everything and, and and create all this enrichment and get rid of every little bump in your child's road, like to say you don't need to do that. Your kid just needs you to be present and show up. Or for those of you who are really checked out and overscheduled and distracted, like your kid needs you to show up. And you you know, you know really need to help them feel safe and you really help need to help them feel seen and soothed. It could be a total like mash pot of shame spiral, right? So I was feeling some dread, like, gosh, I hope we did that well. I hope we were able to, to invite parents in a way that feels good and not shaming. And I was so relieved and actually felt emotionally moved interior at times as i read because i think when when we activate the shame response it makes us even less likely to be able to be present and what's so great is that the research says there's no need for us really to beat ourselves up anymore mm. that's what the research says and so i think what we've really done is created a generous warm welcome invitation to parents to say What's so important is for us to reflect on our own experiences. Did we feel safe, seen, and soothed by our parents? Do do we expect people to show up for us? And do we know that people will be there for us? And what's so great is that the research shows that when we begin to reflect on those things, it can actually change how our brains are wired so that we can show up in better ways. So that's a whole second path of hope is that because our, our brains are wired for relationship based on experiences once we start changing what those experiences are, even if your kids are grown and you're thinking about this and the the ruptures that maybe you didn't repair and things like that, that other path of hope is to say it's never too late because we can start Mm -hmm. changing the way we show up in the moment with our adult kids or with our significant others or whatever. And it starts changing things right away. And so there really isn't a need for us to beat ourselves up because the research is also really exciting in that you know, there, there's some research that even indicates that if we are attuned about thirty percent of the time that kids can develop secure attachment with us. So that leaves a lot of room.
0: Seventy <laughs> percent is a lot of percent, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I, I have one more kind of thought and question here and then I'll pass the baton over to Rick for a second. To give one final thought on shame, I've been reflecting a lot in my own life recently around past misdeeds of various kinds. And how do you come to terms with the reflection that in the past things could have been better? And I think that that's a really open question that's kind of challenging to give a pithy response to in a couple of minutes on a podcast. But I I do think it's good to name it. So I'm glad that we've done that. And to the ways in which it's possible to focus on benefits in the research and things like that around the reality that there's a lot of time left from here, which is certainly a phrase that has come up to me in my own life recently that I've been very reflective about and has been very useful for me.
1: Yeah. And I think to remember that you know if you really study how the nervous system works and what happens subcortically, below that prefrontal cortex area where we're aware of what we do and why, below that, deep in our brain and in our nervous system, There is so much happening that we don't have conscious access to. And I truly believe the more I study the science and the more I work with kids and with adults, the more I'm convinced that most of the time, most of us are doing the very best we know how to do. And that sometimes we are held captive by our past or by our nervous system reactivity in the moment. And so one of the best things we can do is to provide some self-compassion and to say you know i did the best i knew how to do at that time and i think that's one of the best things about developing a coherent narrative like we were talking about about shining the light of awareness on our own histories and how our brains have been wired for relationship a big piece of that is going back and starting to ask questions like I wonder why my parents... Let's say my parents didn't help me feel safe, right? They never got me. Or if I was upset, I was totally left on my own. Or my parent was even frightening or whatever my, my history is. If I can reflect on that and ask the question with curiosity, I wonder what that was about. I feel like they wanted to love me. They wanted to be the best parent. What was that about for them? And when we start exploring that and trying to make sense of it, and then we can go, gosh, you know, my, my dad had a lot of trauma. You know, or my parents were really young, or whatever it was. You know, when I learned about these patterns of attachment and my own story, and to say, gosh, my dad provided a a more avoidant, dismissing style of attachment to me. He was like an emotional desert. He wasn't interested in the past or in relationships or emotions. Intimacy and affection were not comfortable for him. And then I look at his upbringing and I go, oh, That wasn't about me. That was about how his brain got wired because his parents didn't do that for him. And now that I'm shining the light of awareness on it and making sense of it, I can feel a lot of compassion for him and for the child he was that he didn't get what he needed. And now I can also say, and guess what? I don't have to pass down the legacy of that avoidant, dismissing style of attachment because I've reflected on that. And fortunately, I had a really strong, secure attachment with my mom who was amazing with the four S's. But what's important about that is that when we are able to do that, it's very healing for us. It can take away some of the shame we feel like I wasn't lovable or you know, whatever it was, and we can offer compassion back through previous generations so that we can offer it going forward. Mm. And then, you know, hopefully we keep this book on our bookshelves. And when our kids are grown, they'll go back and look at it and offer us some (laughs) compassion for the ways we messed up.
0: If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment. And it speaks to how much value people get out of the show dr john has a phd in counseling and he's been working with people for over 20 years and the show has a very cool format real people call into the show and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges maybe it's something related to their relationships anxieties or emotional well-being he explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine. No multi-step protocols. Just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you.
2: That's really good. And, And I think maybe a fourth way to listen to this, adding to the three I named already, is to think about the ways that we show up for ourselves.
1: Absolutely. Or
2: don't, right? and the ways in which we can give to ourselves a quality of of protection and safety in that regard, the ways that we can soothe ourselves, the ways that we can really, really see our own internal processes, and the ways that we can actually, in effect, have a secure attachment relationship with ourselves. So I wonder if you could kind of briefly summarize the last two S's, to be soothed and secure.
1: So soothed, At its essential core, it's really about helping co-regulate the other person's nervous system. And that's really what we're talking about. But soothing is basically where you are present in the moment. It comes after scene typically. So you're like, I can see you're having a really hard time getting out of the bathtub. And then soothed is, you know, how can I help? It might require words like to say, you know, I, I will listen or I'm here for you. But the purpose of the words is really to promote connection and empathy. But it can also be a lot of nonverbal. I think you know, of times when I didn't quite know what to say and my husband or my friend or my sister or whatever was having a hard time. And I might just be present without saying words. It might be nodding my head or whatever. So in some ways you think about like, let's say a kid's really reactive. They're screaming and yelling. They're really angry about something. And you say, I can see that you're really angry right now. I will listen. Or you ask, how can I help? Or you start rubbing their back. Or you know, one of the things that Dan and I have written about that's incredibly effective and came about by accident in a clinical session I was doing with a family. I was working with this family where the dad and the son, they would co-escalate. Instead of co-regulating, there was co-escalating. And the son uh, had actually some sensory challenges, but the parents didn't know that. And so they just thought he was spoiled. And so when we began to be curious to peel back the layers of why his nervous system was so reactive, We understood that. But what would happen is the kid would demand something. The dad would say, you can't have that. And the dad would end up screaming and yelling and the kid would kick him or hit him. It just always ended up in this big, horrible, exhausting battle for both of them. And so one day in a clinical session, I said to the dad, you know, when you're yelling at your kid, I'm wondering what you look like. And he said, what do you mean? And we started exploring together that he would have an aggressive look on his face and his tone of voice would be aggressive and his posture was aggressive. And so we talked about how our neuroception, you know, that's Stephen Portis's word, detects threat. It's always like, Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? So when his little when his little five-year-old's nervous system detected threat that was coming from the dad just being mad in the moment, which was totally understandable, the kid would always go to a fight-flight phrase response, which is what we do when we detect danger. So we started exploring together i said what could we do to help communicate really quickly to your child's nervous system no threat and so i ended up coaching this dad next time his kid got dysregulated to sit in a relaxed posture below eye level and i said stop screaming and yelling you're only allowed and i usually don't give formulas because it's much more about attunement but i this dad i said i want you to only say two things one something empathetic like oh buddy you're so mad right now and two to say i'm right here with you you. And the dad looked at me and he said, you want me to sit in a submissive posture to my child? And uh, so to not set off his threat system, I use as much playfulness in my voice and softness in in my posture. And I say, no, I want you to use a strategic posture to downregulate his nervous system. And we kind of laughed about that together. He's like, you're just using science to manipulate me. And so we just had a playful moment there. But um, I didn't think you would ever do it. And And a couple weeks later, he came back and he said, I thought that was a terrible idea. But in a moment of desperation, I sat on the floor and I don't think I did it just right. I said, I can tell you're mad, but I'll sit here. But it was progress, right? And he said, my kid calmed down. (laughs) Yeah. He said, my kid calmed down faster than I've ever seen him. And something Mm. interesting, he said, I stayed calmer than I've ever been able to. And of course, then we could link that to all the science about how we posture ourselves and move our bodies and how that activates different neural networks. But that's another way we can soothe is just that nonverbal getting below eye level. Or let's say you know your significant other is mad at you about something and instead of standing there with your arms folded, to sit down, to communicate, I'm here to listen. I've got time for you. This is important to me. So these are all ways we can soothe is, is really we're sort of helping turn the dial down on the intensity that's happening within our child. And then that leads us to that last one of secure, which is basically... That when we have not perfect, but repeatable enough experiences, almost like reps the brain is getting, like we're lifting weights, enough reps of experience of feeling safe and seen and soothed, the brain then wires to expect that if they have a need, someone will show up for them and help them feel safe, seen and soothed. And then over time, what we believe happens given the outcomes that we are measurable is that that middle prefrontal cortex that is the seat of social and emotional intelligence and mental health and executive function and all of these wonderful things like insight and empathy and all of these things gets better developed. So then what happens is we can provide ourselves with the four S's, like you were saying, Rick, where we can help ourselves feel safe, seen, and soothed. And we know we can always show up for ourselves. And then we can do that for others. We can do it in our romantic relationships and in our friendships and for our own children. So this is really a gift that has really generational benefits. And that's, again, why it's so exciting that you don't have to have had that. You can earn that secure attachment and that wiring by reflecting on it, by making sense of it, and really developing a a sense of understanding who we've come to be
0: That's a wonderful reflection. And you've, in a way, kind of preempted the next thing that I was thinking to ask you, which was about secure and insecure attachment. It's a favorite topic of mine. We've done full episodes on it in the past, so I don't want to get too in the weeds of it right here. But kind of put simply... We know that it's an important thing to be securely attached to our children and to be someone that they can securely attach to. But as you were saying before, a lot of us had imperfect parents and imperfect childhoods and that process of reflection can help us kind of come to terms with that. But what are some of the other ways that people who maybe were in Imperfect environments growing up can become more securely attached as adults, both in terms of their relationships with others and in terms of being someone that maybe their children could learn to depend on.
1: That's a great question. Well, you know, in The Power of Showing Up, at the end of each chapter, Dan and I have questions for reflection. It's called showing up for ourselves. And it helps us Mm. sort of do that reflective process. So, you know, there are lots of ways we can earn that secure attachment and that we can cultivate it in our adult lives. You know, one is to do the work of reflecting on our our childhoods. We can do that in therapy. And essentially, the therapist becomes the secure attachment figure and helps us feel safe, seen, and soothed and becomes a secure base or a safe haven, which are both terms right out of the research. To make it so that we're safe enough, we can go back and look at that. And so we can do that in therapy. And particularly if you've had trauma or you had parents who were abusive or you had more difficult things, this is really important. And you know, Dan has this beautiful analogy of you know, when a dog bites you, your instinct is to yank your hand out of the dog's mouth, but then that shreds all that tissue and it's difficult for it to heal well. But if a dog bites you, apparently you're supposed to reach into the throat of the dog a little bit further. So it gags and it releases its grip and then those puncture wounds can heal much more um, cleanly and nicely. And so Dan's analogy is that we need to find the courage to reach into the throat of our own stories and our own pasts. So, that it can release its grip on us and we can begin to heal. So, therapy is one path to do that. Another is journaling or self reflection. You know, take the questions at the end of these chapters where we're asking Did your parents help you feel safe? When did you not feel safe? You know, did they really get you? What happened when you were emotionally upset? How did they respond to that? did they help you when you were having a hard time or did they kind of berate you and, and make you feel like you were less than when you needed help? And can you count? do you feel like you can count on people? So we ask these questions. So just the process of reflection, asking those questions, sitting with them, journaling them, that's another way to do it. And then I've got two more practicals. One is the research actually shows that in adulthood, That if we have a more insecure pattern of attachment, and I know we didn't go into the details of that, but roughly speaking, um, that one I talked about where your brain is disorganized, where people were threatening to you, your your people who were supposed to keep you safe, or you kind of grew up in an emotional desert where the internal world and emotions were really not talked about and you were kind of left on your own to deal with things emotionally. Or you had a parent who was really unpredictable and kind of more chaotic and You maybe even had to take care of them sometimes, but they didn't consistently show up for you. If you have one of those types, patterns in adulthood, if you're in a relationship with someone where you live with them, so it could be like a roommate or a romantic partner or a spouse, the research shows that after about five years, if that other person provides you with the four S's and and shows up for you and and has secure attachment, that you start moving into that category as well because you've had enough reps for your brain to anticipate and expect someone's going to show up for me. Someone's going to do that. And so they learn how to do that. And the fourth way is related to that, which is to make sure you have people who show up for you. And I think... One of the things that we're saying in this book is look there's a lot of advice out there and a lot of things as parents that we can beat ourselves up about or that we feel like we should be doing and it's really simple we're saying what your kids need most from you is your presence is to show up and particularly if things are if they're in distress if they're having a hard time which sometimes looks like really bad behavior that's a whole other talk mm. we could talk about how most of the ways <laughs> we think about discipline and respond to kids behaviors is actually counterproductive but It's a simple idea, but it's really, really hard to do. It's hard to be Mm. present even to our own selves, much less other people. And so one of the things I'm always telling parents, but all of us as adults, we have got to have people who show up for us. We have to have people who help us feel safe, seen, and soothed, and that we know we can count on.
2: I totally agree with you. And I want to ask you a kind of oddball question.
1: Oh, please. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So
2: one way to... Here, what we've been talking about is how to be awesome for other people, especially our own kids. And by awesome, I really mean, you know, to use the phrase that Forrest also knows well, you do too, the, to be the good enough parent. Yeah. But to, to be a good enough parent means being an excellent parent, in my view, that yeah. we have a moral duty to kids. As, as I joke, we've inflicted consciousness upon unsuspecting flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for us. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a <laughs> profound duty to our own children that's and to children friends. in general, all the children yeah. of the human tribe. And that's my view. So you've done a wonderful job of talking about how to be with our kids and by extension, how to be with other adults and how to be with ourselves in the best possible ways, realistically, so that they have experiences of feeling safe, seen, soothed, and secure with us. Okay, great. So now we have a profile of kind of be the best you can be with other people, realistically. You have a lot of clarity about what that profile looks like. What do we do? When in our adulthood, we're dealing with other people who are not rising to being that way. They are not showing up. They are not helping us feel safe. They're actually making us feel unsafe. Uh, they're not reliable. Uh, they don't see us. They're committed to not seeing us. Uh, they sure don't want to soothe us. If anything, their mission is to agitate us for their own purposes, one way or another, to stir up greed or hatred, fear. I can think of this scaled up at all levels, including politically. And lately, I've been really struck by the number of people who ostensibly seem so nice. <laughs> You know, they're (laughs) often, uh, you know, well-educated. They have a mindfulness background, maybe uh, even some background in psychotherapy. But when the rubber really hits the road, they're not going to do the right thing if it's hard. And they'll swerve away from doing the right thing if the wrong thing is easy. And I've been reflecting a lot about what do we do then? Let's assume that we are seeing clearly Uh, The truth does set us free. We are really seeing something in them. What do we do then? I know this is a little off topic, but to me, it's a central question, including uh, what we do about it when it's our neighbor or our partner or... Our so-called friends, or work colleagues, or scaled up to our institutional leaders. Yeah. What do you think about all that?
1: Well, and I would love to hear your take. I'd love to learn from you on that question too.
2: <laughs> I've reflected a lot about it, yeah. um, and but it's very alive for me. Yeah. Uh, I've kind of swung. You know, I've uh, I've I've moved through a lot of a kind of a phase of seeing everyone's Buddha nature and and that the radiant essence in everyone, and I'm still with that but i've also been really struck by the importance of truth telling including among people that are more i don't know helping profession types touchy feely types to really recognize bad behavior when that's what's really happening
1: yeah well i think i mean i think it the answer is not surprisingly it depends i mean it depends yeah. on so many factors you know if there is someone who is is truly toxic and there's someone that you can choose not to spend time with that sometimes is the best thing to do and i think the more i've learned about how we are so held captive by one another's nervous systems the more i think that that should absolutely be something on the table is to say this person is so toxic i have mm. loved them i have provided generosity i have provided connection i've provided all of these things and it's too toxic back and i think you know that's that's always my last resort But because I have a deep responsibility to show up for the other people in my lives, I need to make sure that I am not sharing a lot of mental energy with people who are toxic. I think the other piece is very much true. And again, because we're so held captive to one another's nervous systems, I do believe that a lot of the time we can have an impact when we offer generosity and kindness and connection. And I, I think about a time... When I was young, before I had children, I was working in a furniture store and there was a man who was being verbally abusive to his young daughter. And this is so not like me. I actually tend to avoid conflict and, you know, we could get into why and my whole childhood and all of that, but we won't. Um, but I tend to That's be... That's so
2: interesting. No, it's okay. We'll jump <laughs> up the back there.
1: I put my hand on him and I said, you know, she's really listening to what you say to her. She's really hearing what you're saying you need to be careful about what you are saying to her. And he, I didn't say it in an aggressive, angry way, but that he did not like that. And he started yelling at me too. And then, and I think what happened was I actually activated his nervous system into more anger. So he was more abusive with her. So, you know, from that experience I learned, and now that I've been a parent, I understand more. If I'm in a store and I see a parent being really inappropriately aggressive with their child, I mean, not, they're not, You know, abusing them necessarily right there in the moment, but there's yelling at them and they're being really harsh and threatening them and all of these things. If I put my hand on them or I just get close and I say, oh gosh, parenting can be so hard, can't it? Like, and I offer them empathy, it actually down-regulates their nervous system so then they can respond in better ways. Mm. And I think, you know, when people are being unkind and rude or they're not doing the right thing, they're, they're having bad behavior, I feel like a lot of times if i offer kindness and generosity and i do the right thing in the moment by showing up and being present to what just assuming they have a lot going on making the assumption that they you know they're they're coming at it with something really difficult happening for them i feel like it softens them it puts them in check it regulates their nervous system more and so that's what i try to do and I think that toxic thing is something to be considered as well. And I do think there are ways that we can... And this is no big wisdom I'm going to give here. But there are ways we can tell the truth that are going to amplify chaos and more distress. And there are ways we can tell the truth that are kind and gentle. And I don't think it does anyone any favors if we pretend like everything's fine. I think it's important. And I do think we have a responsibility, but we can do it from our own perspective to say, you know, I'm noticing this and that may just be my experience, but this is what I've noticed. And I I just, I know you're a really good person. So I'm wondering how you're thinking about it. And so you just offer and invite curiosity on their part. I think anytime we can infuse curiosity into a situation, it gives creates possibility for change.
0: Mm. That's a great reflection and really a great series of points on i think a very challenging question in general <laughs> not even not even from like a parenting or interpersonal standpoint but from like a societal standpoint yeah. you know how do you go about sharing what you believe to be true in a context where there are a lot of people who disagree with you
1: and i don't don't you guys think too that there are people that they're just not willing to look at it. They're just not willing to go there. And so, you know, there are times, you know, my mom and I were having a... My mom's a psychotherapist and works with me. So I've got a little thing like you two have with my mom. (laughs) And, you know, there are times we've been talking... We've talked about family members or whatever and about bad behavior or something that was really selfish and that impacted Mm. everybody else in the family. And to say, okay, is this person open at all to hearing the truth? Particularly if, you know, I remember like when my dad was alive, you know, I remember one time saying, you know, I want to spend more time with you. I want relationship and more connection with you. And it feels like you, you know, you flake on me a lot, or it feels like you don't show up when you say you're going to. And, you know, what ended up happening as a result of that, because of his avoidant dismissing attachment, is that made him pull further away. Mm. He was like, yeah, yeah, we should see each other more. Like he gave me a good response. But what it meant was that He was like, yeah, I don't want to get into all that mess. And so, you know, I think some of the times we have to ask the question before, we should never impulsively respond because that comes often from a dysregulated nervous system. But when we reflect and say, is this person open to hearing the truth? Are they interested in self-reflection and self-growth? And is it going to be counterproductive if I communicate this, even if I communicate it in a good way? There may be times that we shouldn't tell the truth because it's going to do more harm.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely great points, and I totally agree with you. So as we get toward the end here, there are a couple of questions that we like to ask everybody who comes on the show. One of them is our kind of closing question, and I think it's a particularly pertinent question uh, for you, Tina, given everything that we've talked about here, which is about developmental psychology and child-rearing and how to be a good parent and a good person. If you had the opportunity to go back in time And speak to yourself as a child or a young adult, somebody growing up in a household that you've described. What would you want to say to that person?
1: Oh, such a good question. And thank God I've done some of my own personal work because I I actually can answer that question well. And it's great because it's impacted how I parented. I wish I could go back and when I had feelings of anger or sadness or anxiety, that I would have not just assumed that it was something wrong that i needed to change or get rid of but to be able to be present to say this is this is what i'm feeling right now and to be present to it to be curious about it to say i wonder where that's coming from what's that about for me and then to ask this really important question which is what do i need right now i think you know i grew up in a family where it was my job to be the peacemaker and it was my job to take care of everybody and and I was the big sister and I still try to parent my younger sister, even though she doesn't really want me to. But it was really like in my late 30s before I ever really ever asked myself the question, what is it I need right now? Like I might just stay feeling resentful. I might just be mad and resentful. And to be able to say, okay, I'm curious about that. That feeling's coming from somewhere. What's that about for me? And what is it I need right now? So I think that's a really key question. And I ask my kids when my kids are having a hard time, what is it you need right now? How can I help? Because I want them to learn to be curious about their internal world and know that they are not victim to their internal chaos and they are not victim to their circumstances, but that they can ask that question, what is it I need and what, how can I be a problem solver here? And I think our kids are missing those skills in big ways. So I really like to encourage parents and teachers and in my own family to ask those questions.
0: Mm, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, those are wonderful reflections, Tina, and really a beautiful answer. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. It's really been lovely.
1: Thank you. Can I leave your listeners with one final thought that I just wish I had woven in? And that is that, you know, as a wife and daughter and therapist and mom and best friend and all the different roles that I play, you know, there are times that I'm not sure exactly what to do. I might not know the right thing to say or, you know, do I do I need to address this behavior right this minute or what should how should I respond to my kid whatever. What I love about the power of showing up is that it becomes kind of a north star for me so that I know that whatever's happening that I need to show up for myself and I can show up for the other person. If I can help the other person, like my husband and I had a little date last night in between dropping kids off different places. We had a window and so we went and had Mexican food. And my husband wanted to t- talk with me about something that had been bothering him about a previous conversation we had. And as he begins, you know, I start to feel some of the defensiveness rise in me. And then I then I'm like North Star, North Star. And I go, okay, my job is to help him feel safe, seen and soothed in this conversation. And that doesn't mean I'm passive or I don't say that's, that's not what I meant or here was your role in that. It doesn't mean any of those things. But anytime, regardless of what's happening, if we can help the other person feel safe, seen and soothed, and we can do that for ourselves, it can really be our North Star to guide us. And then to make sure we have people who show up for us in our lives as well so we can do that.
0: That's a great reflection. And Tina, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thank you guys.
0: So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. The topics of today's episode focused on her new book, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired, which she wrote with Dr. Daniel Siegel. If you're interested in learning more about the book, which just came out, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. We started by framing our conversation around the four S's, which help create a feeling of parental predictability for children. Those four S's are being safe, seen, soothed, and ultimately secure. Although these traits are, of course, particularly useful for children interacting with parents, it can be really helpful to think of them as guiding principles in our interactions generally. We could all stand to help ourselves and help others feel a little bit more safe, seen, and secure from time to time. We then went on to a conversation focused on reliability and what it means to be a reliable caregiver. This itself relies a lot on attachment theory and how we can become both more securely attached ourselves and somebody that our friends, family, and ultimately children can securely attach to. Tina gave a lot of good information about the ways that we can cultivate not just the four S's, but also a deeper sense of attachment altogether. A lot of the conversation was grounded in an idea from Winnicott, the idea of the good enough parent. Sure, we're all going to make mistakes as time goes on, and particularly, probably, we're going to make mistakes as parents. But that's really okay. Tina pointed to a piece of research that suggests that if you're good enough about 40% of the time, things will generally work out. Ultimately, the point is for us to all do the best that we can inside of our own circumstances, and to have a certain amount of compassion for ourselves around the limitations of what we can do. We talked for a little while also about shame around accepting those limitations and how we can be kind to ourselves and not shame ourselves for mistakes that were made in the past. Tina gave some really good advice there that I think will be useful for many people. Finally, we closed our conversation by talking about what it's like and what we can do when other people don't show up in those 4S ways for us. There are a lot of people out there who simply don't place a priority on making us feel seen and safe and soothed by them. So what can we do strategically to help them be more that way? And also, what can we do to come to terms in ourselves with the ways in which other people often fail to do that? And one of the key pieces of advice that Tina gave was around compassion, that by being compassionate for others, it often can move them more into a stance of being compassionate toward us. If you've been enjoying the podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review the podcast through the platform of your choice and to subscribe to it if you aren't already. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.